that. So like I said, we're kicking off the series this morning, and it is Christmas, isn't it? Yes! All right. Brody loves Christmas. It's, it's officially Christmas because this last week I broke out. If you've been here long enough, you know my favorite Christmas album. James Taylor. All right. The James Taylor Christmas album came out uh, this past week, and which means it's officially Christmas in my life. Uh, yeah, if you're in junior high, please uh, go to uh, Junior High Conversations. I always forget that, uh, which is in Theater 4. That's grade 6 to 8. But James Taylor came out this week. Uh, at my house and my wife, I, I came home one day from work and I found uh, James Taylor on vinyl sitting in front of my record player. Best wife in the world? I think so. Uh, so it, it was already good on uh, Apple Music, but on vinyl it's just that much more better. Uh, and my kids aren't even sick of it. My, my, my youngest son Silas comes up to me, he's like, Dad, I really like this guy. I'm like, yeah, he's good, isn't he? So, so just over time, I've slowly, it's just kind of getting ingrained in them that uh, I told them that this is the best Christmas album of all time. They're like, really? Joel's, my oldest son, he's all about facts. Like, is that a fact? I'm like, it's pretty much a fact, Joel. <laughs> this is the best Christmas album of all time. It's one of those albums I just never get sick of, so I'm sorry for talking about it so much. I guess we should probably talk about the Bible. Um, I'm going to draw your attention to uh, the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, chapter Two, actually, Matthew chapter 2. And uh, actually, before I read this, I would also be, uh, I need to remember that when you walked in this morning, you probably saw a photo booth. And so our hope during this Advent series is that you would stop at the photo booth and take a picture and hashtag it, my journey to Christmas. Can you guys say that together? My journey to Christmas. If you don't know what a hashtag is, we have some young people there that will help explain to you what a hashtag is. Um, and so we're, uh, there's, there's a reason behind that, but just please do that. Uh, stop at the photo booth sometime over the next few weeks, take a picture, and uh, hashtag it. That would be much appreciated. And someone pointed out to me this morning that it's not actually the first week of Advent, and they were correct. Uh, but we have four weeks until our Christmas Eve service, and we want to spend each of those four weeks focusing on each of the themes of Advent. Uh, so we begin this morning with hope. Okay, Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 6. And you'll see it on the screen there. It reads, uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people." This, uh, the story refers to a star, uh, and that's the title of our series, The Star. And the star represents hope. The star represents uh, what beckoned these wise men onto the journey that they were on. And I believe that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes, and that every one of us has, has a longing for something beyond ourselves. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you know this longing is ultimately found in the way, the truth, and life, which is Jesus. But many people, even though they don't know Jesus, still have uh, these longings that are, in, are inherent in them because that's inherent in our humanity. And I think the star for us represents this desire for hope, this journey that we're all on, this journey that God invites us to. The star was intended to bring people to himself, bring people to King Jesus. I've always found this part of the story fascinating because if you notice, if you pay careful attention, that the chief priests and the religious teachers of the law knew the answer to where the king of the Jews was going to be born. Yet even though they knew the answer, even though they knew the story, it did not actually result in them engaging in the journey towards Jesus. And I believe this has huge relevance for us in the Western world. We're familiar with the story of Christmas. We're familiar with the the story of God becoming man in the form of this babe. In fact, we might be too familiar with it that, that we just kind of think about the story, but we don't actually engage in the journey towards Jesus. And the irony in this, in Matthew 2, is that the wise men, or the magi, were not Jews. They were not people that were growing up in the Jewish faith and the Jewish tradition. They didn't know the prophetic, uh, the, the prophecy that was given that this king was going to be born in Bethlehem. Yet, they followed this beckoning. They followed uh, what their hearts was leading them towards as they were following the star. They didn't have the answers, but they were obedient to following the longings in their hearts, to engaging with courage in the journey. And my guess is even this morning that we have people that have grown up with the Christmas story and it's become too familiar. We have the answers, but the answer, just because you have the answer doesn't mean that we engage in the journey. And sometimes I wonder, why didn't these religious leaders engage in the journey uh, and I think it's because they weren't interested in having another king other than the one they already had. Because to pursue Jesus is ultimately to pursue him, uh, to recognize him and acknowledge him as king. These seekers, these magis, even though they didn't know the story, even though they didn't uh, understand everything that was written about them, their hearts were ready to receive a king. You know, Randall even spoke about that in the worship set. Uh, the earth receives her king. And so the question this morning is not whether you know the story, whether you know about Jesus, but whether or not uh, you are willing to engage in the journey towards him as king. So this morning we focus on hope. I have a, some kind of flashlight device here. And so you can imagine the star, it kind of represents this longing, this journey that we're being beckoned into. And when the lights are on, you can turn the lights back on. Uh, when the lights are on, it's kind of unspectacular, right? And the light only begins to make sense when we recognize or when we see the light in the contrast to the darkness. So let's turn off the lights for a second. Well, it's pretty dark in here, hey? So many of us live in darkness, especially on Grey Cup Sunday, if you're a Rough Riders fan, this is a hopeless, this is a hopeless day for you. But the hope 
that Jesus gives only makes sense when we contrast it, when we contrast it to the darkness that we live in that's outside of us, but also that's within us. And when the, the star shines in the darkness, it actually, now we can find our way around. And so it's only in the contrast of the night sky that the star actually makes any difference. When the sun comes up, the stars are still there, we just don't see them. But it's not until the darkness is there that the stars uh, actually guide us. And so in a, in a similar way, I would say that we live uh, in a time of artificial light. If you can turn the lights back on. Of artificial light, especially in the Christmas season. There's artificial light all over the place. There's traditions. There's songs that make us feel good. There's, there's food and drinks that we have once you know, a year, and they, they kind of bring an artificial sense of, of hope and light into our lives, and sometimes we can forget for a season the darkness that we live in, the darkness of the world around us. And I believe that Jesus isn't inviting us to ignore the darkness around us or the darkness in us, but to recognize it, and that Christmas isn't medication to a medication season to avoid that darkness, but it's an invitation to look for hope in the midst of that darkness. We live in a, we live in a time where the kingdom of God, as Jesus called it when he came to earth, has arrived and it's here, but it's also still coming. Those people in the beginning of the Christmas story they were living in this time of waiting, and that's what the word Advent means. It means waiting or waiting for someone to come. In fact, the last book in your Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book in your New Testament, Matthew, there's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years in which they didn't hear God speak. And then Jesus came, and Jesus brought hope. And then Jesus left, and he said, He's coming back to fulfill what he started. And we kind of live in, the, in this in-between place between when he first came and when, he, when he's going to come for a second time. And so in a similar way, I believe that we're kind of in the same type of shoes as those people in that first Christmas story. We have a greater hope because God's revealed himself more clearly in the person of Jesus, but we're also waiting for the ultimate deliverance and freedom that will finally come when Jesus comes again. And so Advent is embracing this uh, this in-between world, the tension of, of hope realized, but hope also that we're waiting for. And over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to have some brave individuals that are going to share their stories with us. And I'm so encouraged that they've uh, chosen to be vulnerable and be courageous before us, because I think that this will encourage us in our own stories and how, uh, how hope, how peace, love, and joy actually uh, how we experience these things today. So with that said, I'm going to invite uh, my friend Lauren Gilbert to the stage. You can give uh, Lauren a hand. Yeah. 
disappeared on the stands that we just moved away, I think. Let me take that one. Yeah. Okay. Is that working? That's great. Yay. Well, thanks for joining us, Lauren. Appreciate you uh, stepping out there and sharing uh, with us. And, uh, you know, as I've mentioned already, that this, this morning is about the theme of hope. And, uh, you know, there's, you've, been, you've experienced this tension of uh, living in a place where you've, you have hope or you're in need of hope and you're in this in-between place. Uh, and there's a couple of parts of your own story uh, that um, you're going to share with us. And uh, so we're just going to jump into that. And let's, let's, let's start with the first one, um, you know, a story that started for you in your, in your teenage years. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, I was a pretty normal teenager. And when I was about 18 years old, I graduated high school, I was working, and um, my mom decided to, to, as she had in the past, she decided to do a diet. And this time, it was the zone diet. This is even pre-Atkins. So um, she got this diet book and uh, was doing this, and I found the book, and I had a look, and I was like, you know what, I could do this too. Like I didn't need to lose any weight or anything, but I was like, this, this could be fun. Like, I'm going to try this out. So um, I did that at the, at the same time as her. And she gave it up pretty, pretty quickly, um, but I kind of went, went hard at it, went in earnest and lost some weight. Um, and it's interesting, like around the same time, um, since I was 18 and I was still living at home, but I was trying to branch out a little bit uh, as an adult, so just wanting to do my own thing and have my own schedule, and I think there was a lot of, um, there was an interesting dynamic in our home, like some emotional dependence, I would say, of my parents on my sister and I, and like that's not their fault, like um, they hadn't done this before, like let us leave the empty nest, or have an empty nest, so um, they were kind of like holding on to my sister and I closer, and we were kind of trying to leave and do our own thing. So, um, and then like I was also the only Christian in my home, so um, I was trying to be like the perfect girl and the perfect Christian, um, but I was also like, I just want to like, I don't know, like not have a curfew and break out on my own. So I was feeling just like, Life was a tight tie on me um, and getting tighter. So um, I did this diet at the same time, and I realized, like, oh, like, I can't really control very much about my life, but I can control what I eat, or at least I thought I could. So, um, yeah, it, it was kind of the ultimate in passive aggression. Like, oh, I don't need to eat around my family, and they kind of get mad about it, and they're like, you need to eat, and... I would just refuse. So it was this whole big dynamic all together. So, and I think I had the genetics for kind of getting into an eating disorder as well. Um, and I've heard it say, said like, genetics loads the gun and um, your environment pulls the trigger. So that was kind of 
perfect timing for me to um, enter an eating disorder. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you made a, you know, a couple of comments around, uh, you know, the emphasis that our culture puts on appearance. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about the pressure that you felt in terms of uh, your appearance and how that was maybe attached to your acceptance or some of those relationships? Yeah. Um, certainly, like, um, growing up, your looks in my family were kind of elevated above, like, intelligence, um, athleticism was also valued, but um, that was, I, I guess, a unique dynamic in my home, but also in our culture today, like, um, there's the thin ideal, and um, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are, you're pretty much affected by that, so. Yeah. I'm just looking at uh, a quote, that, you know, when we were sh uh, chatting earlier this week, you said, uh, if, if I can look like Jennifer Aniston, then things will go much better for me. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that lie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's totally a lie. I don't know. I just thought, like, um, you know, even if other parts of my life were just not lining up right, somehow, like, if I looked perfect, then life would be perfect. And I don't know. Um, I think that's just you know a, te a teenage point of view sometimes, and it, it's taken a lot of years to realize like, wow, that's totally not, not true at all. So let's journey back to you know 18, 19, 20 year old Lauren. You know, can you describe for us a little bit of what a typical day in the life of Lauren would look like? Yeah, well, um, after I I did that initial diet and um, I put that book away, but I was like, well. Like, if a, if a little is good and lost a bit of weight, then more must be better, right? So um, I started making goals as like, I wanna, I wanna weigh this much um, or look like this. And um, I started reducing the amount of eating uh, I was doing or the, yeah, uh, on a daily basis. So um, yeah, and that quickly started affecting, like my hair started falling out after several months. Uh, I was freezing cold all the time. Um, I had bad breath. I was feeling faint uh, a lot. And that's pretty typical, but it's also like, uh, like with anorexia, um, you can explain it away very easily. Like, oh, I'm just always a cold person, that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, so, so I would restrict my eating severely for days on end, and then like after five, six days, um, I'd have an equal uncontrolled um, eating episode. So just completely feeling out of control and um, overeating. And so, so it was just like a pendulum swinging back and forth where like once that happened, I'd be like, oh, well, I just really need to restrict tomorrow. and. Exercise was a part of this as well. I've always been active, but like, uh, just really increased that a lot. So, so yeah, this was swinging back and forth, and um, bigger and bigger swings, and um, yeah, it was really affecting my whole life or taking over my whole life. Even though, like, I was a student, I got decent marks, I kept a full-time job, that kind of thing, but. Um, this was always running in the background of my head and like as soon as I woke up like the clock was running like what's happening today 
with food or not mm. eating. So. What I found fascinating uh, when, you were sh when we were chatting this past week was how initially you viewed, you viewed this as, a, as an eating problem, not a not eating problem. Oh. Can, you, can yeah. you explain that a little bit? Sure. It, I think, it, yeah, it's really common for people, um, especially with anorexia, like um, when I started realizing I had a problem, I was like, my problem is that I'm overeating. Like I'm having these overeating episodes and that's the issue here. And I need to, like that's, that's how I finally decided to get help is I thought that that was the problem. Whereas what was really the problem is the, all the previous days under eating. So uh, there's not very many anorexics that get help because they think they're too thin. It's usually like, oh, like I'm overeating or having these episodes and um, feeling out of control and I need to get help. Wow. So you, you felt the level of, uh, uh, you know, hopelessness in, in the midst of those cycles and those pendulum swings and you took a risk and uh, you said, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out and get for help uh, or get some help. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience of reaching out uh, for the first time and how that went. Yeah. Well, I, um, I kind of half-heartedly tried this a few times. The first time I was still living at home and I called our church secretary at the Nazarene church and um, she was like in her 70s and I went and I brought her like James 5 I said like I'm having a problem with food like can you just pray for me and then I'll be healed of this and then I won't have this anymore because <laughs> James 5 says confess your sins yes. to your brother so that you can be healed yes it's like okay yes. that's my that's my ticket so it's like this is it Here's the one. So, um, I mean, she was so kind, and she did she did pray for me, but that did not um, that didn't heal things right away. And I know God takes a while um, healing us gradually sometimes. So, so there was that. And then when I was going to Sate, um, I was just having a really low time, and I finally called uh, the guidance counselor. But it was later at night, so I had to leave a message, and I didn't get a call back. Um, and yeah, like that was just really hard, you know, like it takes so much to like make the call, like, um, so to not get a call back was sad, but then I was like, oh, you know, maybe I can just figure this out on my own anyway. That was always like, oh, I can figure this out on my own and just eat normally again. Um, but maybe I should talk about, um, my girlfriend who I finally told. Yeah, so kind of two strikes, you, you reached out a couple of times, and uh, um, and then the third time, there was a bit more hope involved in that, that third one. Yeah, so um, by this time, I was, I think it was 20 or 20, just turned 21, um, I had moved in with a girlfriend downtown in Calgary and was working for an oil and gas company, um, and I was still struggling with this, and one night... Um, my roommate's name was Megan, and uh, one night I just said, can you come sit on the couch? I just want to tell you something. Um, and I was feeling like so much shame in all of this too. Like it's, it's something that is like, you know, movie stars, they have it all together and you never see like the problems in the background. So um, I was like just so afraid that she was gonna want to move out or not be friends with me. and. Um, so I'm like, I think I have a problem with eating and like, 
um, just told her about it, and um, she was sitting on the opposite side of the couch, and she was so amazing, like, she moved, she was a touchy-feely type person, she moved directly beside me, she grabbed my hand, and she's like, Lauren, I love you, you're gonna get through this, and then she said, and you're getting therapy right away, <laughs> which, that's the ultimate in kindness, I feel like that's exactly what Christ would do. Hmm. So, just to maybe even overstate the obvious, can you, you know, the first time, two times you reached out um, and you didn't get that response, can you, can you contrast that with the level of hopelessness and then the level of hope you felt uh, in each of those scenarios? Yeah, I think um, telling someone and ha having them still love me and want to be my friend, that that gave me so much hope and just like um, I was telling Matt that I I was reading that there's two sides of hope one is the desire and the other is confidence so through this like my desire to get help um, that flagged sometimes and then kind of like most addictions it's like oh I can figure this out myself or I, I want to engage in this again, I don't want to get help. Um, but with telling someone, I think that increased my desire to like really get help um, and gave me a lot more confidence that someone else would walk through me with this because eating disorders are very isolating. Um, you say no to a lot of food occasions when you have one. Mm. So for many of us uh, this morning, uh, you know, some might resonate with your uh, the story of the eating disorder, um, but others uh, might just resonate with the this idea of pendulum swinging, with with uh, addictive cycles, with being stuck in a place and not knowing how to get out of it, um, and in need of of hope, uh, in a, that place of hopelessness. Um, what would you say to encourage those people that find themselves in that place? This is a hard one. Thanks a lot, man. Sorry. <laughs> Um, well, I, I would say to ask God for, for the next step. Sometimes I was asking God for the desire to get better, um, and that's the best that I could do. Um, but often I would ask um, just for the, for the next step. Like, throughout years of, of getting help with this, like, I saw three therapists, I saw three different dietitians. I attended Overeaters Anonymous for a couple of years. Um, I've, I've read probably 75 to 100 books on this subject, like countless podcasts. So just like asking God, like, I know that is my personality style too, but um, just to ask God the next step, the next person to talk to or something that can jump out at you to kind of help you along. Yeah. Yeah, uh, previously you said uh, the biggest prayer I hung on to was, okay, God, show me the next thing. Show me the next book. Show me the next person, the next conversation. Um, and I do feel that God came through on that, but the, proce the process was so slow. Yeah, it was agonizingly slow. But I think if God wasn't in that, like, I don't, I don't think I would be here today. Like, um, so he did come through, yeah. for sure. Awesome. Uh, tell, 
can you share a little bit about uh, how your view of God uh, changed from you know your 18 year old self to where you sit today? Uh, you, you said a, f- a few profound things on on just how you understood God at that time and how your understanding of God has changed as you've engaged in this this journey. Yeah, sure. Um, I think in my teens and my early 20s, like I kind of um, I definitely like feared, like was afraid of God, and He just seemed very impersonal. Um, I, I feel like it's like Jesus is a little easier to relate to, but God is like scary and mean. And um, so I don't know, just coming to see them as both the same person and both um, being with me on the journey, um, as well as like, I don't know, thinking about about God, even caring about a woman's issue this way. Um, I know there's guys that struggle with this as well, but um, yeah, just just understanding that like God and Jesus, like they care about this and understand um, even even though they're like male figures, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you re- you referred to God as a taskmaster. <laughs> yeah, it's like God's a taskmaster. Yeah, and then Jesus was different. Right, Jesus uh, was kind. <laughs> so so how, how did understanding God as a taskmaster ma- affect? you when you were wrestling with this well like like down to the nitty-gritty it would be like if you are overeating this is a sin um if you care about this too much that's a sin stop it so it's like Mm. versus god is on your side and like he's your coach and and helping you so um those two views are very different for me I was even reading uh, in my devotional time this morning in Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says that, um, that, uh, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And, uh, and the revelation of Christmas is that God is like Jesus. And so for many of us who, who grew up with this idea of God being a taskmaster, um, it actually doesn't bring hope. It brings a, a level of hopelessness because you feel like you've got to muster up the energy and the righteousness within yourself uh, to get God less angry. Um, you know, but Jesus enters into our world in the Christmas story and in the incarnation, right? He comes in flesh um, and he doesn't reveal, it's, it's not in contrast to what God is like, it actually reveals what God is like, that he enters into the mess with you. Um, Okay, uh, Lauren, what's your relationship with, with food like today? You know, so that was when you were 18, 20, now it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> actually mostly it, it is yeah. all good. Yeah. Um, it's taken so many years, like I don't know, I think some people struggle with this for like a year or two and it's out of their lives and for me, um, like I got... I got help initially from a great Christian counselor, and we we did. We talked a lot about my family and setting bound boundaries with them, and that actually helped help things with food a lot more. Which is strange, but you know our lives are all tangled up together. So, um, so there was that. But I think then I was still like so used to this cycle that. Um, that restriction and, and overeating, like that continued for um, many more years. 
And I would say it was only in the last couple of years that um, I found like just so much freedom, just so much freedom to live my life. Um, and like that's been, again, still working with the therapist and two of the biggest things that I've had to deal with is just like um, giving myself unconditional permission to eat and, and that's whatever, whenever. And that, it seems simple and it's exciting and it's really difficult all at the same time. So, um, so there was that. And then secondly, like um, letting my, my weight or my size land at wherever it needs to be and being okay with that and like working on acceptance of myself um, no matter what size I end up at. And like I'm speaking about this and I totally understand like I have thin privilege and I, I get that but um, just um, working on having self-compassion because who knows what size I will be um, throughout my life uh, and also just like having that size acceptance for other people in my life and understanding like critical thoughts that I would have of other people and um, taking those thoughts captive. And that has really made a huge difference in my family relationships. I have two family members who are diagnosed with type two diabetes this year. So, um, and I think they both seem to feel a lot of shame about that. And I'm not heaping any shame or blame on them for that. So it feels nice. It, it's just like really helped my relationship um, with those people to be like, I'm just your friend, whatever, no matter what. Awesome. Now there's another part of your story uh, where you experienced hopelessness um, and had to journey through that. Uh, can you share that story with us? Sure. Okay. Um, this is... This is um, about our adoption of uh, Rex. So um, fast forward, now I'm 30, I was 34 years old, um, and Neil and I had experienced infertility for a couple, two or three years, and then we, um, we decided to go the adoption route after some treatments. Um, yeah, we just decided to go with adoption, so, uh, our name was on a wait. Our names were on a waiting list for about three years before we were chosen by um, by a birth mom, and her name was Amy. Um, should I just keep going? Yeah, with just this, run with it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Amy was 17 when she was gonna have this baby, and um, there there wasn't a guy in the picture. I guess it was a really short relationship. So. Um, yeah, so Amy chose our, our little profile picture book, and um, she was seven and a half months pregnant when she picked us, so we, we got to meet her. She, came, she and her parents came over to our house. It was the most awkward meeting ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> she walks in, and I'm like, oh, I just want the, the baby. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> nice to meet you, too. <laughs> um, so yeah, we we met Amy and and it, like she was a very a very nice person and and it was a really good match. So it was like okay, um, 
like they were going to call us when Amy went to the hospital to have the baby and we were planning to be there. Sorry, there, uh, can you, uh, the Calgary Pregnancy Care Center piece of oh, that, can you, yeah. can you share sure, that with me? Sure, sure. So Amy um, went for counseling at the Calgary Pregnancy Care Center um, and she met a wonderful woman there named Wendy Hunter. And and is Wendy here this morning? Yeah, right back there. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Yes. I kind of forget this part. Um, so I, I guess you told Wendy, like, I, I think I'm going to do this adoption plan. And I picked out two people, Neil and Lauren. And Wendy was like, what? Like, I know, I know them. I know them. So um, it was super exciting. Like, Wendy texted me after. She's like, I met, like, your birth mom. And, like, um, just like a total God peace inside of this. So, um, yeah, uh, but then it came to the, the day that Amy had her baby. Um, it was in the middle of the night on, well, it was like a Monday, early, early Monday morning. Um, and I woke up actually that Monday morning to a bunch of texts that I had missed in the middle of the night. And um, it was Amy's mom saying, like, Amy's going to the hospital. And then, like, I think the baby's coming soon. And, like, the, then the baby was born. <laughs> the baby was born. So I'm just, like, getting going to get ready for work. And I see these texts. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Like, we, OK, have to call into work. And um, so Neil and I, like, I, I called Amy's mom and I was like okay like we'll be there right away we're coming to Peter Lougheed and um, she's like yeah that's great that's great and then uh, and then we hung up and then she called back like 10 minutes later and she's like you know I, I think it might be better if we talked to a social worker before you came to visit the baby um, and I've got Kleenex I might but um, so that was when both Neil and I were like, like, what's going on? Like, we were supposed to be there. And um, yeah, so I, I just immediately was like, something is wrong. Or like, do they want to do this adoption? Or what's happening? So um, we talked to our social worker, who is also Amy's social worker. So we talked to her. And she's like, I'll go to the hospital, figure out what's happening, and can you meet me there at 4 p.m. today in the lobby, and, and we can have a chat. So we had the, the whole day of Rex's birthday, just like, I was a mess. I was just crying the whole day. And um, we even like went over to a friend's house unexpectedly and said, like, we need prayer. Like, um, I, I basically couldn't pray the whole week. I was like, OK, God. You need to get other people to pray. I don't know what's going to happen. So, um, yeah. Um, we got to the hospital at 4 o'clock. Um, and it was raining that day. It was, like, so, like, nature mimicking how I feel. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so we got there, and we talked to our social worker. And um, we even brought with us, like, we made Amy this, like, gift bag popcorn and magazines and all the stuff you get when you don't get to take a baby home. You can have this gift basket. So we brought that with us, and we didn't know if we were going to give it to her or not. But um, 
our social worker at the hospital, she's like, you guys, this is off. This is not happening. Um, Amy uh, wants to take the baby home uh, to think about it, and uh, she's not she's not willing to sign the adoption papers. So we're just like totally crushed. Um, and how many years of waiting up into yeah, that point? Yeah, it was like three years. Three years. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, is this ever gonna happen? Like this was our chance, right? Mm. Um, so, but like. Our social worker, she's like, well, I mean, Amy said you're welcome to come and visit the baby if you want, but, and I was like, we can visit the baby, and she's like, yeah, do you want to? And both of us were like, yeah, yeah, we do want to. I'm like, I, we have a gift basket, we should just give it to her. <laughs> um, and like, then our social worker, she, like, she started crying, she's like, anytime I've had, like, a failed adoption, like, the the adoptive parents just want to get away. They just want to leave as fast as they can. Um, I don't know, but like Neil wanted to get pic a couple of pictures just for closure. So, um, so yeah, we went. She's like, go on up. So we went and visited Amy and her mom in the hospital room, and um, there was also a little baby in in a clear bassinet there, and. Uh, Amy's like, yeah, sure, you can, you can hold them. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, was really worried about breaking him. I hadn't helped <laughs> babies very much, but he was eight pounds, four ounces. Um, and I put him in my arms, and I'm like, he feels good. Like, man, like, I'm like, I, I could do this. Like, I could do this. We could do this. Um, so yeah, I just cried and held him and I, I, I didn't say anything, like, what are you supposed to say, like, give me this kid, <laughs> I'm running away. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I just held him and, and cried and Neil got a picture and then, the baby opened his eyes, and he's like, he hasn't done that before. I'm like, mm. <laughs> mm. Nope. <laughs> mm. So Neil held him, too, and then uh, and we made small talk, and then we left. And it was like visiting somebody else who had a baby. We left, and, and we had to come home, and uh, we sat on our big round chair and made the phone calls to my parents, my poor old dad, like, just telling him, sorry, like, this didn't work out. Um, Neil's parents, and I think the worst phone call <laughs> was to Jake Fluker, Fluker family. Um, Jake's like, hey, Gilberts, and then we told him what happened, and there was just, like, just sobbing on the other end, so that's where I got it. You get it through adoption, thanks, Jake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, that was on um, a Monday, and we both called into work and said, we're not going to be here, um, not going to be there for the rest of the week. Um, and on Tuesday, I got up and walked to the nursery and closed the nursery door, and I, I was just like, Neil, I don't want to be here right now. Like, 
can we just take a road trip somewhere or something? And Neil's parents in Kelowna had said we could come out there. So we just went to Kelowna and it was great to just like cry and kind of look at nature and um, talk with each other. So that was Tuesday and then we were gonna stay there the week. So by Wednesday afternoon, um, <laughs> we were both feeling so down but Neil's like, you know what? We're almost to Vancouver anyway. Like, why don't we catch a Canucks game on Thursday night? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're thinking. How could she have married a Canucks fan? <laughs> There's some things worse than a failed adoption. Sure, sure he's not an Oilers fan? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, so... Uh, Thursday, we were on our way to Vancouver, and I got a text from Amy, and it was like, I hope you guys are having a good day. Um, nope. <laughs> um, and she's like, could I, could I talk to you guys today on the phone? And I was just like, I don't want to have this conversation. I know exactly what she's going to say. She's going to be like... I'm sorry for messing up your lives, and I've decided to parent, and um, so anyway, and I just, honestly, at that point, I just wanted to give her a piece of my mind, and like, I was like, Neil, I just want to tell her, like, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, like, you can't do this to people, and, um, and this is like one of the only times in our marriage Neil pulled rank, he was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not going to say that. This is going to be the shortest, kindest conversation that we've ever had. This is Amy's decision. And I knew he was right. Um, I hate that. Uh, <laughs> so we pulled off at the rest stop there in Merritt, and we called Amy. And uh, she, she just said, like, um, I was wondering if it might be OK if I have the lawyer come over today and I want to sign the papers. And like we were both, I just yelled into the phone like, what? Like, like what happened? And she was like, I was so confused when the baby was born. Like I, I just wanted some time with him and I just need to think about it and be with my mom and dad. And we've talked a lot about it this week and She's, she's like, I've talked to God about it, and I think this is the right thing. Um, so I want to sign the papers. And, uh, and then she followed it up with, this was Thursday. She's like, but we'd like to keep them until Saturday. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, yeah, I'll believe it when I'm holding a baby. Like, you do whatever you need to do. Um, so... Uh, but yeah, so we, we did end up going to that hockey game. And uh, I texted, <laughs> I remember texting with Wendy Hunter during that game, like, she's like, get back to Calgary. This is going to happen. So, um, so we just hightailed it back to Calgary on Friday. And then Amy's parents, they go to the Baptist church in Airdrie. So they had a, like a kind of a made up ceremony there. They called the pastor in and, and Amy's brothers and sisters. and. Um, yeah, it was like a, um, like a baby handing off type ceremony and it was beautiful and our social worker was there and, um, yeah, some of Amy's friends were there. It was amazing. 
And like, it was a total God thing. Like, I don't, like, even our social worker, she's like, I've been doing this for 15 years. Like, nobody has taken a baby home and changed their mind. She's like, if they're taking a baby home, they have a car seat, they have diapers, they have everything they need. So she's like, this is amazing that this happened. So, um, but yeah, I think that there were a lot of people praying for us. So yeah, so during the ceremony, we, we cried a lot and prayed and Amy handed me the baby and we had to get help figuring out how to put it in a car seat. Um, and then we put it in the car and we drove away as fast as we could. <laughs> go, go, go. That is awesome. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. Yeah. Um, Should I tell you about his name, too? Maybe? Yeah, do, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so, so we named our son Rex. And that first name is just for fun. It's easy to say. It's easy to spell. Um, so Rex. And then, and then Amy had been calling the baby Lucas, Lucas with the K, um, throughout her pregnancy. So, so his name is Rex Lucas. And then thirdly, um, throughout this whole journey, I felt so much like Thomas. Like I was just like, this is really not going to happen. Are we ever going to get a baby? Like that kind of thing. And I was really doubting that it would happen. I did not have hope. And um, so his third name is Thomas. Um, mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Rex Lucas Thomas Gilbert. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, thank you for sharing both of those stories. And I wanted Lauren to share both and uh, because I think hope looks like different things in different situations. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's, there's an ending to the story like that that's different than you would have hoped, but it was, it was uh, you know, God came through in that hope in a, in a way that you didn't imagine, and that, that's really neat. And sometimes hope is what carries us through uh, years and sometimes decades of, uh, you know, of struggle, and you have to choose hope. And hope is hard to choose because it actually, uh, it, it becomes heartbreaking uh, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? Which one of the Proverbs says. And, uh, and when there isn't that realization that we've been hoping for, it can, it can become heartbreaking and it's hard to choose hope repeatedly. Um, and that's uh, also why, you know, I, why I love uh, the Christmas season as we talk about how, you know, God didn't come to evacuate us. You know, he actually just come, came to enter into whatever story we're in. Uh, whatever hope you need, uh, the story of Christmas is one where God says, I'm going to be present with you in your story. Uh, and this is a hope that goes beyond circumstance, and it's a hope that keeps hoping. And uh, it's one that will find ultimate fulfillment. And uh, if it's not in this life, it'll be you know, when Jesus returns. And uh, so thanks for sharing the heartbreak and the hope and the wrestling. Thank you. It was an honor. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you would mind lighting our Hope Advent candle this sure. morning. That's all right. Absolutely. Can we give Lauren a hand? As Lauren lights the candle, uh, our worship team is going to come up, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And I'll, I'll just invite Randall to dismiss you guys after this closing song. Um,
Um, I just want to highlight a, a couple of things as we close. Um, I, I pray that you feel hope this morning. And uh, like I said, Lauren's story is not your story, uh, but we all have parts of our story where we need hope. We need to hang on to hope. Um, and, uh, and Jesus brings hope. And, and, I, and I pray that whatever your circumstance is, it is that you would feel hope that's beyond your circumstance. Um, and sometimes God blesses, with the, with, blesses us with the realization of those hopes, and sometimes we're kind of left hoping. Um, and it's that, it's that vacancy where, we, where we're hoping for something and we're not receiving it that Jesus actually ministers to us, and, um, and we realize the goodness of God, that God's goodness is so much greater than uh, whatever uh, thing we're going through. And so I pray that you would experience the bigness, the goodness, uh, the hopefulness of God, um, I do need to give uh, a couple of quick uh, announcements, uh, just that on Tuesday night is our deep stream service, and so it's just going to be an extended time of, of worship uh, together and community time together, and that's at Wood Green Presbyterian. Uh, the details are in your bulletin. Um, but uh, just a powerful time, important time for us as a community just to, just to spend time in worship together, and also our covenant community meeting after service uh, next Sunday, and it's a potluck. And uh, the details of that are in your bulletin as well. Let me pray for you. And after the final song, if you'd like to receive prayer for anything, I would just invite you to come for the front. Uh, we'd love to pray for you this morning. So, Father, we thank you for hope. Uh, God, we thank you that you are not a taskmaster, uh, that we just got to muster up enough energy and righteousness to be acceptable to you. Um, but, Lord, you are a God... Uh, who the Bible says emptied himself, that you took on the very nature of a human, the very nature of a baby, um, and that this wasn't other than what you were like. It was actually a full revelation of what you were like, God, that you continue to make yourself present with us in the midst of our mess. So God, whatever uh, each person finds themselves in this morning, God, I pray that you would reveal your presence and your hope in those situations. Lord, that you would guard our hearts, that we would not become hardened. Our hearts would not become hard uh, when things don't work out the way we hope or hope isn't realized the way we thought. But you would keep our hearts tender towards you, Lord, and that you would fill those gaps in our lives uh, that feel hopeless and that you would be our foundation, our source of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.